This is the fifth part in our series on the parables of Jesus, the stories that Jesus told to teach us about God's kingdom. Uh, this one, called often the parable of the wicked tenants, is believed to be the last parable that Jesus uh, told before he was arrested. So last words have a special kind of import. So let's listen to this, the last parable of Jesus. Here another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. To be delivered from the unhappy desire to own everything we see or touch, that's what it means to be free. Graham Greene in his novel, The Tenth Man, wrote, if a person loves a place enough, they don't need to possess it. It's enough for them to know it is safe and unaltered. In our quest for everything to be putty in our hands, to shape our own destiny, to be master of our fate, we often seek ownership more than friendship, which leads to a dead end and to a dead life. This is a parable about sharecropping. Sharecropping is a deal between someone who owns the land and somebody who works the land. It's usually 50-50. One party does all the work, they get half the crop. The other party that owns the land, they get half the crop. That's fine, but what if you get more than just land? What if you get actually a developed piece of property? That's what these tenants got. They got vines that were already planted and a nice hedge around them. They got the wine press already constructed. They got the tower which can serve as their home. They got a fully developed winery, and they weren't happy. It'd be like if the late Robert Mondavi came to you and said, okay, here's the deal. You come up to Napa Valley here, you use my vines, you uh, use my uh, hydraulic presses, my stainless steel tanks, my oak barrels, and live in my house. And all I ask is, you, when you're done with the harvest, just give me half the wine. Pretty good deal, huh? These guys had a good deal, but they didn't think so. They didn't want to just work the land, they wanted to own it. So the land, the owner sends somebody to collect the rent, they kill him, sends another person to collect the rent, they kill him, 
another person, they stone him, sends more people, and then finally sends his own son, thinking that they will respect him, but they kill him too. They think that by killing the son, they're going to somehow inherit this property. But that's crazy. That's not how laws work. It goes to the next of kin. It's crazy thinking. But most human trouble is caused by that kind of arrogance and stinking thinking. All the way back to the story of Adam and Eve, that mythical story of the creation of human beings. Adam actually means person in Hebrew. It's at the heart of human unhappiness is the all-consuming need to be in control and to be our own God, to have full ownership rather than stewardship of what we have. Specialists in early childhood development will tell you that an essential step in a child's development is distinguishing what belongs to him or her from the environment. To discover that their foot is theirs and not part of the crib. To discover that what toys are theirs and what toys belong to others. The word mine comes very easily to toddlers. The word not mine, not so easy. It takes a while to learn that. The need to possess frequently exceeds its limits. So many of the financial scandals in the world, the whole Bernie Madoff thing and all those things, they're often just caused by an unrestrained desire uh, to have more than we ought to have. In Joseph Conrad's classic story, The Heart of the Gar Darkness, Colonel Kurtz owns everything in his kingdom in the Congo. The land, the people, and especially the ivory, it's all his. He's in charge of everything. But then he gets sick and begins to die. And Marlowe, who comes to replace him, watches as a steamboat is loaded with Kurtz's last shipment of ivory, and he reflects upon the dying man's legacy. He watches everything that Kurtz owned drift away down the river. And suddenly, too late, he realized Kurtz did not own anything, ultimately. And instead, the powers of darkness owned him, and the possessor became the possessed. When I lived in Miami, there was an elderly man in my congregation. I'm going to call him Frank. Frank made a lot of money in the stock market. He was very successful. And um, by the time that I knew him, his wife had died. He lived by himself in a big, big house on the bay in Miami Shores. And whenever you'd go to visit Frank, the TV would be on to the financial network, you know, the 24-hour-a-day financial news with a little ticker at the bottom telling you what's going on in the stock market. And if you were really lucky, he'd turn it down a little bit when you visited. He'd turn it down a little bit. But the whole time that, he, that you were talking to Frank, his eye was always drifting over to that ticker there to see what was going on in the stock market constantly. I visited him in the hospital just a couple days before he died. The financial channel was on. The ticker was going. His eye was looking at it. And it was so sad because uh, to be there, on, to, to look for ownership rather than friendship on your deathbed, well, I guess there's no greater poverty than that. 
Biblical faith says that we need to acknowledge God's ownership and dominion over all life. Maybe it was a perversion of religion that was utmost in Jesus' mind when he told this parable of the wicked tenants. Three quick little points that this parable teaches us. First of all, it, it describes the amazing, amazing patience of God. Remember, all these par- parables are about God. God is, he's the landowner. And the, God is so amazingly, I mean, how many times would you keep sending people to collect the rent if they kept getting killed? And then after they'd killed several uh, people, would you then send your son? This is an amazingly patient landowner. There's a story that I love. You've probably heard it before about a woman who was at the airport. She was waiting to get on her plane. She went into a little shop. She bought a magazine and a bag of famous Amos chocolate chip cookies. She sat down in one of the communal areas there and began to read her magazine, eat her cookies. And the man who was right next to her reached over and took a cookie out of the bag and ate it. It was irritating to her. She thought it was kind of weird. She ate some more cookies, and he, he ate another one. And back and forth, each one taking a cookie, until the very last cookie, he took it and broke it in half and gave it half of it to her. She, she had had enough by now. She just got up, left, went to the gate, got on her plane. About a half hour into the flight, she reached into her bag, and she pulled out an unopened bag of famous Amos cookies. She realized that he wasn't eating her cookies, she was eating his cookies. And he was totally okay with it. He was fine. Very patient guy. Very patient. She was confused about who owned the cookies. That happens to us sometimes. We get a little confused about who owns the dirt, about who the dirt belongs to. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns your house, he owns your car, he owns everything that you have. You just get to take care of it, his stuff, for a while. But we forget sometimes that we're stewards. I read about a man named Kevin Baugh, who is one of the group of people um, called uh, micro-nationalists. There's actually a Lonely Planet book of people like him who have declared their own country His country is called the Republic of Malaysia, and he prefers to be referred to as His Excellency Kevin Baugh. He has a uniform with medals. He has a flag. He has a motto. He has a website. Oh, you haven't heard of the Republic of Malaysia? That's because it consists of Baugh's three-bedroom house and 1.3-acre yard in Dayton, Nevada. The Chicago Tribune ran a story about Baugh, 45-year-old father of two, who is a micro-nationalist, one of the wacky band of do-it-yourself nation builders who raise flags over their front yards and declare their property to be, as Baugh put it, the kingdom of me. There's a whole group of people who have done this. Wow. Mr. Baugh forgot whose country he was a citizen of. He forgot who he owes allegiance to. He forgot who built the roads that his car drives over, the electricity plants, the water sewers. He forgot who he owed all of that stuff to. He thought it was just independent of himself. 
I know it sounds crazy, but it's no more crazy than the rest of us who think that we own anything, who declare our belongings to be the kingdom of me. There's no smaller package in the human, than a human being all wrapped up in themselves, William Sloan Coffin said. Especially true when it comes to our money. God gives us this great deal, better deal than the, than the uh, tenants got, actually. God says, okay, I'll give you this stuff, and then all you got to do is give me 10% back. You keep 90% of my money. And yet, we don't like the deal. We, we want to negotiate a better rate. God, how about 2%? 3%? We want to negotiate something a little bit different because we're not happy with the 90-10 deal that God asks us to do. One time I saw a homeless guy with the sign, but his sign was different. You know, it wasn't the traditional thing, we'll work for food or homeless veteran. His sign said, have you received the blessing? And I thought, what a great sign. Because if, you, if we remember that we have received the blessing, doesn't that just make us want to be more generous to others when we feel blessed ourselves? So to, to remind people of their blessing was a very smart thing to do because we tend to forget. When here we are in America, we've got 5% of the world's population, but we control 20% of the world's wealth. Have we received the blessing? We forget that there's a billion people in the world that don't even have access to clean water, while the average American uses four to 600 liters of water a day. Have we received the blessing? We forget that every second, seven seconds, somewhere in the, in the world, a child under five dies of hunger, while Americans throw away 14% of the food we purchase. Have we received the blessing? Billion people live on a dollar a day, have we received the blessing? A steward is some, someone who realizes that we have received the blessing. So when you're asked to give, whether it's to the endowment fund of the church, as we're asking this particular month, or to the stewardship campaign in the fall, when you're asked to be a part of the kingdom of God and give, it's important to remember that we have received the blessing. We have received it. G.K. Chesterton said that a man walking comes to the edge of a cliff. If he keeps walking, he will not break the law of gravity. He will prove it. All that the tenants did to try to take charge did not change the simple fact of who was in charge. What was broken was the relationship between those tenants and the landlord. Back to Graham Greene. If a person loves a place enough, they don't need to possess it. It's enough for them to know that it is safe and unaltered. That is a steward. That is a person in a right relationship with the owner. And that is what it means to be free. Amen.